In Puerto Rico, they call themselves Boricua. But Boricua is more than a name for a person from Puerto Rico. It's a way of life that means embracing the beauty that surrounds you, seeking adventure no matter where it may lead, and sharing that vibrant spirit with everyone you meet. And you can experience all that warm, welcoming, passionate culture set in a tropical island paradise without the need for a passport for U.S. citizens or permanent residents. Learn more about how you can live Barigua at discoverpuertorico.com. In Puerto Rico, they call themselves Barigua. But Barigua is more than just a word to identify a person from Puerto Rico. It's a way of life that means embracing the beauty that surrounds you, seeking adventure, and sharing that vibrant spirit with everyone you meet. In Puerto Rico, you can experience a tropical paradise with world-class beaches. You can immerse yourself in the rich 500-year history of Old San Juan, where there are stunning forts, classic town plazas, and iconic monuments. You can indulge in a foodie paradise with renowned restaurants, seaside kiosks, and an innovative cocktail scene. And you can take in an abundance of natural wonders like El Yunque, the only tropical rainforest in the U.S. National Forest System, all without the need for a passport for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. Learn more about the warm culture of Puerto Rico and how you can live Boricua at discoverpuertorico.com. Hi, and welcome to Travel Tales, a podcast from Afar Media. I'm your host, Deputy Editor Aislinn Green. I don't know about you, but I am finally beginning to dip my toes back into the travel waters. For example, I recently took my first flight in nearly two years, which took me to Alaska. Getting back out in the world, it really just makes me want to travel more. So, lucky for us, the creative folks I've worked with over the past seven years, comedians, philosophers, novelists, they feel the same way. So each week on Travel Tales, we'll hear from one of our favorite contributors about a trip that changed their life. Ready? Let's go. In this episode, we're going to hear a different kind of travel tale. Renata West, a storyteller by profession, was born to a Maori family in a village near Rotorua, a city on New Zealand's North Island that's often described as the cultural capital of the country. And in his village, which we'll learn about shortly, his family has been telling stories for more than 200 years as the original pioneers of tourism in New Zealand. And today, Renata will tell us the story of how his community learned to embrace tourism that both protects his people and helps preserve their rich culture, a model he now seeks to spread to other indigenous communities. Here's his tale. I grew up in a little village with a big name. It's called Te Whakarewarewa Tanga o Te Opetaua a Wahiao. 36 letters long. And believe it or not, it's only the third longest place name in New Zealand. We call it Waka for short. Waka is a little village in a valley of just over 150 acres, and it's filled with hundreds of different geothermal marvels. We're talking geysers, hot springs, cauldrons of boiling hot mud, gas and sulphur escaping through cracks in the ground. Growing up, 
this was my backyard. This valley is where my people come from, but it's in fact the second place we have called home. We moved here after the eruption of a volcano called Tarawera in 1886. My tribe used to live beneath the mountain, under the shadow of what has been described as one of the eight wonders of the natural world, the Otukapuarangi, or the fountain of the clouded sky, and Tetarata, the tattooed rock. Today, most commonly referred to as the pink and white terraces, naturally form pools in a stepped formation sloping down the side of a hill, fed from a gushing geyser at the top. In the 1800s, the terraces drew visitors from far and wide. Curious artists and budding photographers, camera technology was just becoming popularised. The early paintings and photographs of the terraces would become some of the first postcards for these beautiful islands all the way at the bottom of the world. Even the royal family heard about these wonders. In 1870, Prince Alfred journeyed to see them for himself. He helped spur a flourishing tourism trade for those interested in taking to the healing waters. Tourism boomed. It was a skill that came naturally to our people, who loved telling stories. My tribe became one of the richest communities in the country. We became so wealthy that when a new traditional meeting house was completed, gold coins were placed in the eyes of the carvings instead of the traditional abalone shell. But it changed in an instant. After the volcano erupted in 1886, the terraces were lost, and so was the village. It was seen as a warning to our tribe to not be greedy and to not forget the lessons of old. That above all else, maintaining our traditions is the most important thing. My people were fortunate to move down into the valley of Waka to live with our relatives. That became our new home. And although this valley is also filled with spouting geysers and springs, we never forgot those lost terraces. Today, we work to never forget the lessons learned under the shadow of the mountain and to never again put money before people. Today, it is the only geothermal area in the world where people live and it's a part of our life. It's how we live. We cook crayfish from nearby rivers in the hot springs. We bathe ourselves in different hot pools. It's an intrinsic part of who we are as people. It's unique, so naturally, people have been interested to learn about our way of life and to learn about our very distinctive place. And so tourists and visitors flock to our little village right from the very beginning, just like they had to the mountain. A little-known fact is that the New Zealand Tourism Board was established in my hometown in 1901, and it was the first ever tourism board in the world. In 1919, my grandmother Maramena Wiari was one of the first tourist guides to be registered with the New Zealand government to take visitors around 
and to teach them our stories, to teach them our way of life. She would of course take them to see the pools, the deepest blue you could ever imagine. She would also show them how we weave our cloaks, mats and cooking baskets with flags. She would point out the boiling cauldrons of hot mud. She would guide visitors along the village paths and show them the small marae or meeting houses. She would share some of the great feats of our tribe, including how our little valley got its long name. She would also explain why our homes have slanted roofs and red intricately carved trim. Visitors would watch children performing the haka, our traditional dance for a penny, and if the wind picked up at just the right time, they may have even been splashed by a geyser. My grandmother was used to the smell of sulphur of her thermal home. Sometimes the visitors were not so accustomed though. And so, my grandmother, along with the women of her generation, became the pioneers of tourism in New Zealand. It's a true family legacy, and we take pride in it above all else. For example, one of my grand-aunts, guide Maggie Papakura, was the first Māori woman admitted to Oxford in 1924. But to us, she'll always be known simply as Guide Maggie. Another grand-aunt, Rangi, became extraordinarily well-known when she took Eleanor Roosevelt on tour and made world headlines when she gave the First Lady a traditional hongi greeting where you press noses together, a move considered audacious by most of the world's press. Guide Rangi would become so famous that letters received from overseas addressed simply to Rangi of New Zealand made it to her mailbox. Over the years, tourism became a major employer for our local families and enabled young generations to grow and learn an international industry. It wasn't as much about making money anymore. There was an equal emphasis on sharing culture and reinvesting proceeds into the preservation of traditional art forms like wood carving and flax weaving. For many reasons, in the first half of the 20th century, Traditional knowledge was at risk of dying out. Tourism income helped us retain some of our most important traditions. Tourism became a viable career and a sought-after one at that. There was a constant stream of well-known and gorgeous visitors, with everyone from movie stars to heads of state coming to see what all the fuss was about. The guide uniforms became so fancy that they almost looked like airline crew. And you're proud to wear your uniform about town, and everyone knew where you worked as soon as you walked into the room. Business aside, when you strip everything right back, tourism is truly about people. You can find spectacular scenery almost anywhere, but you won't find spectacular people everywhere. That's why... Our grandmothers, those early pioneers, recognised that the sharing of culture was what was truly important. A bold move, 
when the easy option would be to simply focus on these strange geological phenomena spouting hot water into the air. We share our stories every day with the world. We share our tales of forbidden lovers who change the face of our tribe. We share tales of great adventures of our ancestors who outwitted their opponents with their great wit and resourcefulness. We share the stories of ourselves, breaking down barriers and misconceptions, one guided tour at a time. That's not to say that we share everything, though. Some things are sacred and held close. Some things are not shared for practical reasons. For example, during the day, we take people around and demonstrate how we use the hot springs to create our hot baths. But no villager takes a bath in the middle of the day when visitors are around. When the village closes and visitors leave for the day, that's the time we enjoy the healing waters, all for ourselves. Life is for sharing, but not sharing everything completely. Cultural tourism has spread to other parts of town. When we talk about experiencing culture, most people think about watching a cultural performance or something similar. But it goes back to that idea of tourism being all about people. I like the example of a Māori-owned whitewater rafting company that sets themselves apart from the competition by offering something no one else can, culture. They start the rafting trip with a traditional prayer for protection, and when you're on the river, they stop to point out sites of significance and tell the stories of the local tribes. So you're getting a cultural experience, but with a side of adventure as well. That is not to say that we have everything figured out, though. By making ourselves accommodating and welcoming to the world, we adjusted our expectations of our language as well. A few generations ago, we focused on learning English to the detriment of the Māori language in our community. Today, we have many of us who don't speak Māori as a first language, but it's something we're working on. Before I moved to Los Angeles six years ago, I was the fifth generation of my family to take visitors around our valley. My mother guided with me in her stomach, and up until we had to pause tourism in 2020, she was still sharing the stories that her grandmother shared with her. Demikit, I realised that it was indigenous communities that were being hit hardest. This wasn't isolated to just New Zealand, but also throughout the wider South Pacific. In 2020, I founded a cultural training and education agency called Pacific Storytelling to help apply the lessons learned of my own community. We focus on asking local people their thoughts about sustainability and connect cultural experts with the travel community. I believe that when things eventually return to normal, we will emerge wanting to know a little more about what makes us all unique. I am encouraged every day by the thought of my grandmothers, the original pioneers of tourism in New Zealand.
That was Renata West. These days, Renata is based out of LA, where he's working to promote sustainable and culturally sensitive tourism to places like Hawaii. His village hasn't been immune from the challenges of the past year and a half, he says, but a strong sense of community prevails. And if he ever feels homesick, well, he runs a bath as hot as possible. There's just something therapeutic about hot water, he says. When you come from a place with hot water coming out of the ground, it definitely sticks with you. You can learn more about Renata's organization, Pacific Storytelling, and sign up for his newsletter at pacificstorytelling.com or follow them on social media at Pacific Storytelling. Finally, it's time for Tiny Travel Tales, when we hand over the mic to our listeners. Now let's hear from Ethelene Whitmire, a professor based in Madison, Wisconsin. In 2013, I spent July and August on vacation in Copenhagen, Denmark. A perk of being a college professor is having time off to travel during the summer and to finish the manuscript for my book. I first visited Copenhagen on a whim for two months in 2010 and fell in love with the city. I've returned a total of 15 times since then, including a year as a Fulbright scholar. The rental agency I use told me there's a very famous cemetery near my apartment where the Little Mermaid author, Hans Christian Andersen, is buried. Local Danes like to bike there, picnic, and jog. I didn't do any of that in the cemetery, but I did use it as a shortcut to the cafes. One day, on the way back to my apartment, I noticed a prominent headstone with the very non-Danish name of Ben Webster. I wondered, who was he and what was he doing in this Danish cemetery? I immediately went to my rental apartment and looked him up. Well, I was shocked to discover he was a very famous Black American jazz musician and that there were many Black American jazz musicians who had lived in Denmark and were buried there. I learned that in the late 1950s, struggling to find work in the United States, many Black American jazz musicians saw that they could make a good living in Copenhagen and easily travel to other European cities to perform. They also liked living in Copenhagen as Black Americans. I read a quote from the tenor saxophonist Dexter Gordon who said about Copenhagen, since I've been over here, I felt that I could breathe, you know, and just be more or less a human being, white or black, green or yellow, whatever. And another quote from saxophonist Sahib Shahab, who in referring to the United States said, I don't have time for this racial bit. It depletes my energies. The musicians continued arriving in Copenhagen in the 1960s, 1970s, and early 1980s, forming bands with each other and with Danish musicians. I spent the rest of the summer and the next few years searching databases and discovering fascinating stories about other Black Americans who lived, visited, studied, and performed in Denmark, including Booker T. Washington, the Black Panthers, Billie Holiday, and baseball player Kurt Flood, to name just a few. I had discovered my next project while walking through that cemetery that day. I am now writing a book about Black Americans in 20th century Denmark, and so far I've called it Searching for Utopia. I'm back home now, but every couple of months, I pull up a Ben Webster playlist and I'm transported back to that summer in Copenhagen.
listener, Ethelene Whitmire. Ethelene has finished her book manuscript, all 500 pages of it, and next summer she'll return to Denmark once more to teach a course called African American Expats in Copenhagen and Paris. Ready for more travel stories? Visit us online at afar.com slash travel tales. And be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We're at Afar Media. If you enjoyed today's adventure, we hope you'll come back next week for more great stories. Subscribing makes this easy. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. And please be sure to rate and review us. It helps other travelers find the show. This has been Travel Tales, a production of Afar Media and Boom Integrated. Our podcast is produced by Aislinn Green, Adrian Glover, and Robin Lai. Post-production was by John Marshall Media staff, Jen Grossman, and Clint Rhodes. Music composition by Alan Kresha. And a special thanks to Laura Redman, Irene Wang, Angela Johnston, and Nina Gainsler-Debs. I'm Aislinn Green, your semi-impatient travel-ready host. I can't wait to hit the road again and again. As we begin to explore the world once more, remember that travel begins the moment we walk out our front door. Everyone has a travel tale. What's yours? What's yours?